Anyhow, thank you, a big, big, big thank you for every single one of you for getting ready for church and coming to join us for church, whether it's online or in person, only for us to come here and talk about getting ready for church. Aren't you glad you got ready for church? Now, the idea behind that, as we're talking about it over a handful of weeks, is that every single one of us spends a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy to get ready to come to church any given Sunday or day during the week or whatever it is. And then when you, when you start to add that up and multiply that over the course of weeks upon weeks and months upon months, and for some of you, years upon years, you realize so much time, effort, and energy goes into getting our physical bodies ready for church. But here's where we started a few weeks ago. It is entirely possible for any of us to show up here at church and the heart not be ready after we've gotten every, every, the rest of us ready. But our heart cannot be ready. And here's why. Because we tend, just in our humanity, to have a very individual emphasis when it comes to faith. Right? Your relationship is you and God. It's been you and Jesus. And you guys have sorted everything out. Right? And, and this, is, this is the emphasis, especially in America, in our culture. It's just a very individual approach to faith. And, and that is a crucial thing, but it's not everything at all. And, and I have a hard truth for every single one of us. When it comes to every single one of us, there is, we could all say this, there is something in me that can get in the way of we. That is, there's something inside each of us that could very much get in the way of what Jesus is wanting to do in and through us as a church. In fact, scripture tells us what that is. It's sin. Now, that's a big scary word that we like to run from because a lot of times we hear the word sin and we think, oh, they're just accusing me of intentionally choosing that over and over. But sin goes deeper than that. Sin is so ingrained in us that we're not even aware that it's at work in in us and it's working against us. And so what happens is that being part of church, we just can't help bring our sinful selves to it. I'll put it to you this way. Have you ever been asked to move furniture? I'm sure we all have. Have you ever been asked to move furniture upstairs? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, isn't it? I remember years ago, a guy in the church asked four of us to move a couch up to the, uh, the floor where he lived in his condo complex, which happened to be the third floor. Now, some condo complexes have one, it's one long stairwell up to floor, floor number two, and then one long one up to floor number three. This doubled back. Like, so you, you had a number of these stairwells to go up. And so we're moving this couch. And I remember we showed up this, that morning and, you know, it was four of us young adults. So it was like, got this, you know, protein shake. And we're, we're recapping our last workout, you know, that so qualified us for this job. And uh, what do you think happened two steps in? We all hoisted it. That part went smoothly. But as soon as you start trying to move in unison together, up these stairs. Here's what happened. I remember I, I was like losing my grip and I went, oh, stop. Hang on, guys. I gotta, I gotta get positioned. I gotta get ready. And me getting comfortable meant somebody else losing their positioning and them getting uncomfortable. And so what do you think this couch looked like by the time we got to the top floor? Yeah, there was a tear in the fabric. And the guy that had hired us to uh, do this with, with his breakfast. Uh, but anyhow, the guy who had hired us said that was a lot more difficult than I was expecting this to be. 
Do you want to know what faith and following Jesus next to other people is? Do you want to know what church is? It is hoisting a weight that you cannot carry on your own from a position of zero leverage. That's church. And so when you look at what Jesus has to say about church, Jesus says, I will build the church. You think, how is that even going to work? Because from a human perspective, it just shouldn't work because we've all got that thing in us. We're, We're all thinking about me individually, myself. And so when you dig around in some of Jesus' encounters in the gospels, some were with individuals, some were with the multitudes, some were with just his disciples. But Jesus, Jesus had to say some things. And it wasn't always this feel-good, you know, pillowy hair, holding a baby lamb, smiling at you kind of love. I mean, there is a tenderness and there is a gentleness to our Heavenly Father's love and our Savior's love. But he had to say some things to some people that weren't always comfortable. And here's why. Because he was getting people, and he is getting people ready for a time, for this time, when although his physical presence in his human body is no longer here, he was getting people ready for a time where they would be his presence. And the church, the body of Christ, would be his presence here on earth. And so he had to say some uncomfortable things. And nobody was excluded. Not the Pharisees, not the teachers of the law, not the scribes, not his own disciples, not even his own family. Everybody had to hear some things because we all walk around with a picture of how things ought to be, don't we? Don't we all walk around with a picture of how everybody else ought to operate? I mean, this last year should show us that, right? If everybody just watched the news network that you watched, if everybody had the real story like you've got it, and if everybody just operated like I operate, we'd be fine because Jesus and I have figured this out, right? We've got it all figured out. This is what we do. And too often we bring, we bring our own solutions to everything. And so a couple weeks ago, where we started was this idea that, that Jesus highlighted. When he began teaching, he talked about the kingdom of God. And I think the reason he brought that up was just to remind all of us, hey, there's a kingdom outside the one you naturally wake up and and try to live in and conquer and reign in every single day. In other words, you've got to empty yourself of your kingdom. You've got to be emptied of it to be filled with his. We're in the Beatitudes. As we look at the first half of every single Beatitude, you know what it is? It's an emptying. It is something that in order for it to be cultivated, it means there's something of our kingdom, our human kingdom, that has to be emptied. And when you look at the second half of each beatitude, there's a filling of God's kingdom or something of God's kingdom. That was week one. And then last week, David Perez, even though he's not here this morning, would you give him a hand for bringing week two? David spoke to us from a a conversation Jesus had. He said, listen, just come to me. Come to me and take on my way of doing things. Take on my yoke. Because too often when we're about our kingdoms, we we strive, as David reminded us last week, we strive for what we think is best. Yet Jesus said, no, 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 take on my yoke and you know what you'll have? You won't be exhausted. You won't be drained. You will have rest. Which brings us to today. And today, I want to look at one statement in the middle of a conversation that Jesus had in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus had this to say. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, 
How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, that's not very emotionally satisfying, is it? I mean, I, I don't know that any of us would wake up and come to church ready to hear and be filled up with that. But Jesus is getting at something. That if you spend all your life going after your kingdom, and you spend all your life going after it in the way you think you ought to accomplish that, there's something going on underneath. There's a belief thing going on underneath. And so when Jesus said this to them, this was not quantitatively, the word generation was not just for that day and age and that time and the people standing there hearing it that day. This was qualitative. That is, throughout time, regardless of what era you live in, there is something common to all of us as human beings. And it's this, we're unbelieving. We're disbelieving. It's not that you don't carry beliefs. It's that we are, we were born into this world, not believing in him and what he can do. Now, that's a sobering reality. But the way I think of it is like this. How many of you are, I'm going to ask, how many of you are not golfers in here? All right, these are my people right here, right? The way we golf is on we and by putt-putt, right? Yes, all right. So here's why. I've tried one round of golf. In fact, I made it, I think, two holes on, on one round of golf in my life because here, here's what I did. I walked up, and for many of you, you walk up the same way, and, and I'm thinking, I'm just going to smash this thing. And so what do we try to do? We try to muscle it. Now, how many of you are golfers? Okay, does muscling the ball work in golf? No. No, you injure people. They have to duck. Um, people ask for their money back. There might be lawsuits. It's, it's crazy. And so, yeah, you can't muscle it, but this is what we do. It's not that you lack belief. It's that the belief is misplaced. We walk through life and we're trying to muscle it all the way through, try to force things. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this conversation this morning because Jesus is getting at something. That to be fully ready for church at an individual level, yes, we have to be emptied of our kingdoms. We've got to do things his way. We've got to stop and consider, where is my belief really? I mean, it's easy on Sunday morning when you're in church or in, in class or with your group to go, oh yeah, the right answer is it's in Jesus. But really, 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 where is our belief placed? Because it's something that Jesus brings up here in Mark chapter nine. Now here's what's happening. Jesus has been up on top of a mountain, having a literal mountaintop experience. And when you read about it, it's a powerful account. It's called the transfiguration of Jesus. And he's got a few of his disciples there with him, an incredible thing to behold. But where we're stepping in, they are coming down off the mountain and they're about to find the other nine disciples. And when they find the other nine disciples, there is commotion all over the place. And as we walk through this commotion, it's interesting because it brings up, it brings up, we get to see in their life something that is still present in our lives 2,000 years later. And what comes up are a few different things that really work against belief in Jesus, even in our culture today. Listen to this. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 says this. When they came to the other disciples, this is off the mountain, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. And already, you see that first thing that was common for them that is common for every single one of you and me. 
See, there's this thing that works against our, our belief in Jesus. You know what it is? It's our detractors. That is those people that we get into arguments with, right? Because isn't it true that if you were to line up your list of how we ought to walk through a pandemic or your list of how we ought to do church or your list of how we ought to do anything, if you were to line that up with every other person in this room, we'd all disagree, wouldn't we? Yeah. And what do we often do when we face our detractors? We power up and and we build our case and we go after one another. And it's just one of those things that we, we, we either do that or we avoid it completely. But as long as you and I walk this earth, there will be detractors. And, and you see already that part of this unbelieving generation, it could be traced to just dealing with these disagreements with one another. Well, it continues. And a man in the crowd speaks up after Jesus asks this question. What are you arguing with them about? Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, when you first read that, you know, we maybe hear of instances here and there of demonic activity. But I don't know that in our culture, in our society today, that that is something that we, you know, as you think back through the last week, that you can point at it and go, yeah, I saw that a bunch of times this week. But you want to know what demonic activity really is? It could be possession like this of a spirit, but it is really the the tool of the enemy is deception. The spirit that the enemy has possessed this culture, this society, this day and age, and, and every generation with, is a spirit of deception. What do we do when we come across deception? And I would say that for many of us, it's just so much work to try to discern that it's much easier to just deny it or to go our way. Recently, as not long ago, the FDA, by not long ago, I mean maybe in the last decade or two, when you're 40, that's not long ago anymore. But anyway, the FDA mandated that every single food product out there had to start putting nutritional information out there because there were some food products that were advertising it was this amount of fat, this amount of carbs, this amount of protein, uh, partial lists of ingredients. And, and so there was just this deception going on. And so they ruled everybody's got to have nutritional info on their product. Now, that that might change some things for some people, but not everybody. Because isn't it true when you go to the supermarket, to the grocery store, sometimes you just want to get the food and not look at the label. But this is how we, we treat deception as well. Sometimes it's extra work to do the digging, to discern what is really going on. But as long as you and I walk this earth, there will be detractors and there will be deception. And when we encounter it, it can, it can strike a blow to our faith in Jesus. There's a third element. And this time, it's the statement that we read just a little bit ago. Verse 19, Jesus replied, you unbelieving generation. Now, this wasn't necessarily directed at the man who had brought his son or or the disciples who couldn't drive this, this spirit out. But I think to everybody, he said, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And this one's more difficult because this is that thing that we all will encounter in this life. 
And oftentimes we interpret it the wrong way. There are detractors, there's deception and demonic activity, and there's discipline. Discipline from the hand of God. And isn't it true that when, when someone else comes to you and they tell their story, you can see when it's God's discipline, can't you? And you can counsel them to hang in there, walk through it. He's going to do something with it. But when it's us, that gets harder, doesn't it? See, when you experience the knife of God, isn't it interesting what happens? I mean, he tells us over and over in scripture, if, if you are in Christ, the knife of God is to prune you, to make you more fruitful. But too often, even, even as followers of Jesus, we think, oh, this isn't being cut back. This is being cut off. God, I feel like you're cutting me off here. And this is what we do. And so when we encounter these things, our faith easily can take a hit. And we think, gosh, if that's what trusting in you is, Jesus, then maybe I'll try my way. Because that's what sin does in us. Sin makes us think we have a better way. And we place faith in ourselves, in human strength. How many of you, how many of you at some point in your past have gone on, you've, you've maybe had a bump, you've had a spot, something like that, and you've, you've gone on WebMD. You've Googled your stuff, your condition. Yeah, that's, uh, don't do it. If you've never done it, don't do it. Because here's what happens. That red spot on your arm, you go on WebMD thinking, I'll find this solution. I'll fix this. It, it, you go on WebMD, for all you know, it's smallpox, even though that was eradicated. Or is a mosquito bite from the deadliest mosquito that has ever existed. And you're laying there at three in the morning, like wondering what is, what is going to happen to me? But that's what happens when we go about our own solutions. And so as we walk through this conversation further, it's, it's really interesting, these couple of insights that come out as you pay attention to the back and forth between Jesus and the dad of this boy. Because it shows us exactly the forms doubt takes place and the ways it shows up in our everyday. Verse 19, Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And for some of you, that's all you need to hear this morning. Because for so long, that's the, that's the one thing that you haven't done. Or it's the one thing we haven't done. And he's absolutely saying this in the presence of the disciples because these are the guys that are going to lead the church one day. That when Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended, these are the guys. These are the guys that are going to lead. And so, of course, this is in their presence because he is about to do something with their faith that they could not have arrived at if they'd done it on their own. But he starts with this, just bring it to me. I mean, how many times are we Googling our solution? How many times are we building our case and powering up against our detractors? Or letting deception just have its way? Or, or interpreting the, the discipline of God as just he's mad at me and he wants nothing to do with me? And Jesus says, just, just bring it. Just bring the boy to me. Verse 20, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And I want you to notice this answer. This answer is very telling. Listen to what he says. From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. 
But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You notice the first part of that answer? When Jesus asked, how long has it been like this? This guy had a detailed account. I bet he could have named days of the week, places they were, and the exact injuries and all the damage that happened. And he had a whole track record of it. Do you have a track record right now that you're thinking about? If you're struggling with faith in Jesus, is it possible that it's because we've been staring over and over and rehearsing over and over and over our doubts about faith in Jesus? Because this person hurt me and this experience happened. And that's not to discredit any of what's happened to any of us. It's that we rehearse it. But when it gets to Jesus, notice his statement about Jesus. If. It's a giant question mark. This man's not real familiar with Jesus. He's very familiar with everything that has happened. Not so familiar with what Jesus can do. Now, if I were to just look in the mirror, <laughs> I'd go, yep, that's my, that's my thing right there. We rehearse our doubts over and over and over, don't we? And yet Jesus says, just if you come to me, you'll begin to see. You'll begin to see who I am. You'll begin to see the character of God. You'll begin to experience the heart of God. And you will gain in faith in what he can do far beyond what you and I can do. See, the problem isn't that you and I have doubts. The problem is not that doubt exists. The problem is that we rehearse it over and over and over. I remember when I was at Columbine, Andy Lowry, he's still the football coach there. Um, This is two years after I was at Columbine because I'm 20 years old. Anyway, um, he, you know, this is over 20 years ago. He was the football coach and the weightlifting coach at Columbine. I will never forget the first thing he taught us the first day of gym class when we were in the weight room. He said, listen, you are going to have some movements and lifts and exercises that you prefer over others. But be, be aware that if you gravitate toward one exercise over and over and over and you neglect the other things. So for instance, if you do a push exercise without balancing that, whether it's that day or that week with a pull exercise, something is going to happen to your body over time. You're going to get stronger at first, but then you're going to get muscle bound. And once you get muscle bound, you're going to get, you're going to have a, an extremely limited range of motion and there are going to be all kinds of problems down the road. And as I read this and I thought about that, I went, isn't that the case? We've gotten so muscle-bound in our doubt. And we've gotten so muscle-bound in how we think we respond to our doubts. We've deepened the doubt to a point where we're stuck. And there's not this range of motion when it comes to our faith in Jesus. Well, the conversation continues. And we begin to see the effects of that doubt. In verse 23, Jesus responds to the man, if you can, Jesus replied, everything is possible for one who believes. And already Jesus is highlighting what doubt tends to look like for a lot of us. We walk around and we think, well, I'm going to go, I'm part of church, you know, during these time segments of the week. But in the background, we're thinking, can, can he? Can he do anything? about what's in front of me? 
right now? For, for another man in Matthew chapter 8, a leper, he made this whole journey to Jesus. And you know what he said? Not if you can, if you're willing. See, for some sitting here right now, it's, it's, you have no problem believing God can do anything. The doubt is, will he? God, are you so good that you'll, you're actually willing to do anything about my situation? Do you even see me right now? Do you even see what I'm going through? Do you even see what's happening around me? Do you even see me trudging through life right now? But there's a third form of doubt. And I think this is maybe the most prevalent form of doubt in our American society and culture today. And it actually has nothing to do with Jesus. We answer, can he with no? And we answer, will he with no? And so we look at ourselves and we say, I can and I will. Maybe the most insidious form of doubt in our culture is it's up to me. And we put it all on ourselves. And the thought that we've rehearsed this really deep doubt, you know what we do? <laughs> we think, okay, well, deep doubt means I, I, can only, I can only counter that with really deep faith. And this is the incredible thing about Jesus. It, it's not deep faith he's looking for. Now, deep faith, does it have some incredible things that happen and bear incredible fruit? Absolutely. But you don't, you don't build deeper faith on your own. See, Jesus isn't looking for deep faith. He's looking for a redirected faith off of ourselves onto him. Every single week when we talk about the cross, do you know what the cross is? The cross is, is looking there and saying, okay, I'm going to take my faith off of myself, my ability to do anything, and place it onto you. Because that's what the cross answered. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 said this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Did you catch that? The author and perfecter. See, you and I walk around and we think, I need the perfect faith, so I got to make it happen. The author of Hebrews says, no, he does it. You bring him a mustard seed of faith, he'll perfect it. He authored that. He'll perfect it. He'll deepen it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the answer to deep doubt, rehearsed doubt, is not deeper and deeper faith that you somehow manufacture. It's redirected faith off of you, off of me, onto him, and what he did at the cross. You know, I recently I was saddened because there was a very public news story about a pastor of a, a very well-known church here in the United States that uh, he had posted on Instagram. He was stepping, he was actually fired from his church. And as I read his Instagram post, there was, there was a lot. It was a long block of text. But there was one sentence that jumped out to me that just, it just made my heart sink. He said this, over the last 10 years, I've been building this church. And I thought, oh man. And he went on, he said, and I got to an empty place. And I just thought, that's what happens. That's what happens. And I didn't say that pointing at him. In fact, it convicted me because as I thought back to my days being youth pastor here, I remember I had all the answers for the church. Like if we would just do this, if we just had a water slide for baptisms, I mean, do you know how many people would be coming to this place? 
you know, and I just, I just had it all figured out. You know, if we had concessions in the, uh, in the foyer, I mean, it would just, Jesus, that's what your church needs. And I'm so thankful that he responded in silence over years and years and years. Because any time we think that it's on us and we place faith in ourselves to build the church that Jesus promised in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Anytime we forget that, we lose our power. We absolutely lose our power. So look how this whole episode concludes. There's something very incredible that Jesus hasn't brought up yet. But Jesus brings up our part in all of it. Listen to this. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Huh. Interesting. Jesus just did all the work. But what's so interesting about all this is in Mark chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent the disciples out. He said, I give you the authority to go do this. So what happened? Why did it happen in Mark 3 and Mark 6, but not in Mark 9? Well, the way I read this, prayer fell off the radar. Prayer is that act where we're reminded it is not up to me. It is not my strength. It is him. And so engaging him in prayer is where our power comes from. In fact, I'd say it this way. To become powerless is the disease of the prayerless. And nobody's exempt from that. I mean, these were the disciples. When I allow myself to get prayerless, I make the decision to become powerless. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He said, imagine, imagine that God is this reservoir that is just unending supply. It's always full of water. And you know the reservoir exists. I mean, you can drive down the highway. You know Chatfield Reservoir exists. But it takes faith to believe that from that reservoir, there is a a series and a system of pipes that actually make their way to your house to provide water to your house. He said, so you know it exists. You've got faith there's a pipeline. But this is like walking around your house saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And you've got a faucet. And he said, guess what? (laughs) The faucet is prayer. But too often we walk around our houses and we say, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. He says, if you, if you would just engage the faucet, if you would just engage prayer, you'd be filled, not with your power, but my power. And so, could I propose, I know two weeks ago, I, I asked us to pray a prayer, but could I, could I ask us to pray another prayer? Given to us by a man who was not at the time a disciple of Jesus. And yet, Jesus would use his word in his life, And it's a prayer that Jesus will answer in every single one of our lives. Help my unbelief. It is Jesus, I feel like I'm bringing you this much faith to get through what I'm facing right now. Would you just pray that prayer? Help my unbelief. When you face detractors, help my unbelief. 
when you're faced with deception or the realization of deception, help my unbelief. When you sense or you wonder if you're walking through God's discipline and maybe he's angry or wants nothing to do with you, help my unbelief. Because what he'll do with that in the church, I have a feeling is extraordinary, extraordinary. And so we will pick up there next week when we look at the question, so how then should we pray? But until then, help my unbelief. I'll invite the worship team back up. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for a man who we don't know if he exhausted every strategy, every other option. But thank you for a man who finally brought his son to Jesus. And he experienced healing in his own life. And he experienced the physical healing of his son. But he also, we used him to give us a prayer. Help our unbelief. When we look around at what's going on in our culture and all that we face, whether personal or global, Lord, we know that you've prepared works for the body of Christ, for the church to do. And so let us look individually. Whatever inside of us is getting in the way of what you want to do through all of us, whether that's our own kingdoms, whether that's our own ways of doing things, or it's our own beliefs that have been misplaced on ourselves, help us redirect that faith back onto you in the work that you carried out at the cross. Because we know you've invited us, invited us into the resurrection life and work that you have for the church as a result. And so we thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name.